0: Welcome back to the Plowcast. This is the fifth episode in our new series covering our pain and passion issue. I'm Peter Momsen, Editor-in-Chief at Plow.
1: And I'm Susanna Black-Roberts, Senior Editor at Plow. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Plowcast repeat offender Eleanor Parker. Dr. Parker teaches medieval literature at Brazenose College, Oxford, and is the author of Dragon Lords, The History and Legends of Viking England, and Concord, The Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England as well as, most recently, Winters in the World, a journey through the Anglo-Saxon year. She is also a legendary tweeter, tweeting at Clark of Oxford. Here while I tell about the best of dreams, which came to me the middle of one night, while humankind were sleeping in their beds, it was as though I saw a wondrous tree towering in the sky suffused with light, brightest of beams, and all that beacon was covered with gold, the corners of the earth gleamed with fair jewels, just as there were five upon the crossbeam, many bands of angels, fair throughout all eternity, looked on. No felons' gallows that, but holy spirits, mankind and all this marvelous creation, gazed on the glorious tree of victory. And I, with sins was stained, wounded with guilt, I saw the tree of glory brightly shine in gorgeous clothing, all bedecked with gold. The ruler's tree was worthily adorned with gems. Yet I could see beyond that gold the ancient strife of wretched men, when first upon its right side, it began to bleed. So that was the beginning of um, an Anglo-Saxon poem called The Dream of the Rude. Um, And we have with us um, Eleanor Parker, who uh, has written a piece for our current issue about that poem. And uh, she is going to recite the same bit
0: uh, all in, about gems and blood yeah, and yeah. <laughs> 10th century Anglo-Saxon stuff.
1: Yeah. Um, so she's going to recite the same bit, but in the original, which I uh, don't have it in me to do. So welcome, Eleanor, and um, go for it. <laughs> okay,
2: thank you. What? ich Svefnekist, Sechan wille. What may you met to midge nicht, sit an a Reste Wunderden. Thuchte me that it ye saw silkre treau on lüft laden, lechter bewunden, bērma bea bærtest. Elf that bacon was begotten mit golder, jimmer stoden, fair at foldum Shetum, swilcher der Fifer waren uppen om tham jagsliers banner. Behelden der Engel Drichners el fair thuch forth ye Ne was der huru fracoders yelder, at hieneth der behelden hāligastas, men of and all this merrier shaft Sulich so was se see a bam und each sinum far for wounded mid warmum ye sage wilders trail wa um ye worth it er sheen ye year mit golder ymmers haftun be worthlichcher wild under trail
0: so I am just I'm just trying to put myself into the world in which those words were were written Eleanor I mean, Christianity is still pretty new, and there's this tree speaking to me. Uh, What are the first hearers kind of hearing, (laughs) and who are they?
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, so as you say, this is a time when, you know, Christianity is kind of a couple of generations old. That's probably when the first version of this poem was written, and what we've got here is this very strange vision. Uh, Someone's you know asleep or whatever in the middle of the night and it's dark and it's all very silent and then all of a sudden there's this giant tree that's kind of glowing with light um and uh you know you don't know what to make of it first of all there's kind of this strange sense of what exactly is this that the person is seeing and this is before the tree even starts to speak um so (laughs) it's all very weird and it's kind of meant to be weird i think that is sort of the point of it (laughs)
0: I mean, of course, this is a world without artificial light. It's quiet. Uh, there, you know, there's probably big stretches of uninhabited country around, and, and this, this tree comes in. Uh, sounds kind <laughs> of pagan, actually.
2: <laughs> it's definitely weird. Yeah. Something supernatural is going on here.
1: But it, there, there's a kind of like a gotcha in this poem, which is, do you want to sort of describe the gotcha and how the um, the the, uh, the poet... Builds the suspense about he refers to it initially as a tree, and then there's there's a turn.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of the language in the description that you were just reading and I was reading is about a tree or maybe a beacon, you know, like a kind of fire beacon or something. Um, and so it's not really clear what exactly this person is seeing. It's a tree, but it's also sort of not a tree at the same time. And then as he lies there, just looking at it and trying to sort of take in this vision all of a sudden the tree begins to speak and he realizes, um, and we realize with him that actually this is a specific tree, Um, it's the the cross of Christ. And it begins to tell the story of the crucifixion uh, through its own memories, um, what it, sort of experience what it perceived on the day of the crucifixion, um, and then kind of what happened to it afterwards. So it's the the cross, the tree becomes the kind of way into thinking about the story of Christ's death and resurrection um, through this kind of strange tree persona.
0: And and at the same time, I mean, right from the beginning, it's it's both these things, it's covered in golden gems, and and yet it's bleeding.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's very much this kind of doubleness this sense of sort of shame and suffering and pain, but also glory and beauty and triumph at the same time.
1: So the tree, among other things, kind of gives a bit of a theology um, of the crucifixion. So the tree kind of gives an account of what happened on it. Um, what was, in the, in, the, in the words of the tree, um, how did the Anglo-Saxons understand what was going on in the crucifixion?
2: Yeah, so what the, the tree then goes on to talk about it describes um, the, mo- the kind of the, the particular events surrounding the crucifixion, but it doesn't give you a lot of backstory. Um, it kind of assumes to some degree that you know the story going in, uh, otherwise it kind of wouldn't make sense to you so it's not just telling the story in a way that's sort of communicating okay this is what happened um, when Christ was crucified It's it focuses very much on the moment of his death and the way that the poem presents it is that the cross describes christ as a a young warrior who kind of climbs up the tree he's not just lifted up passively but he's sort of you know like he's mounting a horse or something going, going into battle so it's very much this sense that he has chosen this death um and the cross describes Christ's suffering and the blood and the pain and everything, but there's very much a sense that Christ remains a very powerful figure um, and that he has, you know, he retains all of his powers as God, even as he's choosing to suffer. So that kind of key theological point is is kind of conveyed in that sense through the eyes of the cross. The cross itself is powerless and sort of subject to what's being done to it, but Christ retains his, you know, his Godhead um, and his divinity right through
1: as according to what you described in the piece um in the medieval and and earlier um, understanding of the cross it was very frequently referred to as a tree and that is of course also a biblical idea um there's the idea of cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree um but the way that this works in the poem is a kind of layering of typology is is how it seems to me um can you sort of describe what some of that typology is and how how some of that those images work with the biblical images?
2: Yeah, um, yeah. As you say, this is very much um, the kind of biblical understanding of uh, you know f- focusing on the fact that the cross um, is a tree, partly because it's a kind of mirror image of the tree in the Garden of Eden. Um, so you've got this story of, you know, the myth of the, the fall, which comes through the tree, and then the redemption that comes through the tree as well. Um, and it's really very common in medieval images or descriptions, of the crucifixion to, to present it very much as a kind of living tree, you know, not to, to elide that aspect of the story. Um, and I think, you know, we're familiar with modern images, of the crucifixion where it's like just planks of wood, basically. Um, but medieval cross uh, images have, you know, they have leaves and sort of branches and things and, um, and they might still be rooted in the earth or surrounded by other trees or something. So there's very much this sense that the tree was a living creature, and in some sense, still is a living creature. Um, and therefore, that it's part of creation, it's part of the created world. And it's through this natural object, this natural being um, that Christ has chosen to, um to kind of sacrifice himself and and redeem the world. So that idea of working through creation is a very important part of the story, too.
1: Mm -hmm. And you even went on to talk about the way that the the cross and Mary are associated with each other in various ways.
2: Yeah, that's right. So that's um, another aspect, which is very, very widespread in medieval kind of ways of thinking about the crucifixion, that you know Mary too is someone who's part of creation. She's a human being, but it was through her body that God came into the world, chose to come into the world. And so you've got this kind of parallel between the tree and Mary, these, these created beings who have this role to play in salvation. Um, and both, as, as these poems often kind of explore, with some sense of, you know, they, they sort of know what's happening, they know what part they're playing, but also they have a, a very, in, in other sense, a rather limited perspective, naturally a kind of limited human or tree um, perspective. You know, they're not divine, they are just part of nature. Um, but so there's they're sort of a way into thinking about this story for, you know, medieval readers um, to kind of be able to comprehend the mystery of what's happening here, um, one way to do that is to think through the perspective of the cross or through the, you know, the reaction of Mary um, as she watched her son die. It kind of m- provides a sort of entry point into the story.
0: You, you mentioned, uh, n- not in this particular poem, but there is this tradition of a dialogue between Mary and the cross, where they both express their, their anguish at Christ's death.
2: Yeah, well, they almost even argue with each other, actually. It's a kind of debate poem um, because they're both so emotionally distressed. You know, they've witnessed the crucifixion, they've seen Christ die, and they're so kind of, hurt and angry and upset at what seems to be this terrible kind of injustice. Mary is presented as as really angry as kind of blaming the cross saying how could you let this happen how could you be the instrument of my son's death and the cross is saying well I didn't choose to do it I was grieving as well Um, you know I didn't want this to happen but I had to do what I was told to do. Um, So you've got this sense of almost like these characters caught up in a story that they they sort of only half understand and they're still very much wedded to their kind of human perspective and their, their emotional investment, their relationship with Christ, and they can't kind of understand the bigger picture yet at this point in their story.
1: You talked actually in in um, your last podcast with us, which I'll drop a link to, um, about this vision of Christ as a warrior. Um, but there's also this vision of kind of the world as an animate place, um, as a, the The world is itself, nature itself is much more kind of has much more personality um, than we might con- sort of contemporarily think of it as. Um, is that, can, can you just say more about that? Like, is that just a poetic conceit or is this something that Anglo-Saxons took seriously um, and believed about the natural world?
2: I think I mean, it pervades the poetry, but it's not just a poetic conceit. It is something that reflects their sense of what the natural world is and what the human relationship is to it. Um, And it's a very close one, very much a a kind of um, an understanding of the world that sees human beings as kind of inextricably bound to nature, natural cycles. You know, we depend on the natural world um, for our food and our survival, Um, and we're not, I I mean, there just isn't this kind of more modern sense of, you know, human beings on one side and then the natural world as something totally separate that we, you know, are distinct from and maybe, you know, use or exploit for our purposes or whatever. It's much more this more holistic sense of, uh, you know, what I was saying about creation, this sense that human beings are created like, all creatures of nature are also part of God's creation. And so, of course, human beings kind of participate in a lot of the same processes that nature experiences. We can see our own experiences reflected in the natural world. So it's a really very close relationship.
0: There's this uh, great image you refer to, and I think in the uh, version of your piece that's online, you can actually see an example of that. So listeners, you check that out of Christ's... crucified on a lily. Uh, Just this amazing sort of sense that, you know, all of nature is sort of summoned to help tell the story of the gospel.
2: Yeah, that's a lovely image. And that goes back to this this relationship with Mary and the cross, that sense of a parallel, because the lily is Mary's flower and one of the places where you see these images of Christ crucified on a lily is often in maybe an annunciation scene so you've got the angel and Mary and then a lily which has a kind of mini mini crucifix um, on it or in it Um, so it really blends those two moments you know in one sense the beginning and end of Christ's life on earth um, and kind of brings them together in this quite beautiful but also kind of horrifying <laughs> image. It's sort of, you know, um, it's an image of pain and death, but also an image of of life and birth at the same time.
0: What does it mean that the poem presents Christ as a warrior? I mean, right, cynically, you could say this is just, you know, Christian uh, clergy trying to sort of co-opt, uh, a, a, you know, a, an idea of what's manly in the culture and they want to present Christ in a, in a way that, you know people won't look down on in this sort of very this this warrior culture but you bring out this actually brings out a, a pretty strong um emotional resonance that might not be apparent you know you mentioned the, a parallel to to beowulf and the the bond between the the warrior and his followers
2: yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. It's partly about kind of drawing on images of strength and power that already exist in the culture, you know, and trying to um, sort of bring those into the Christian story and to make the Christian story kind of meaningful for people who are really invested in in this kind of warrior masculine culture. Um, but I think it is also about the kinds of relationships that Anglo-Saxon poets kind of attach most value to in a way. And one of those relationships is the bond between A man a king a warrior whatever and his men his followers the people who've sort of you know basically sworn to follow him to the death and that's the kind of the way that the relationship between christ and the cross is presented um and the cross is in this very difficult position because it really it has this love for christ it wants to be with him it has this very intimate kind of relationship with him as they you know they die together essentially at the crucifixion um but also it knows that it's been forced to be the instrument of his death. It calls itself his slayer. He's been kind of forced to become Christ's slayer. So it has this sense of guilt, um, as well as it's, its love, these kind of tortured emotions, which make that a really powerful part of the poem.
0: So some housekeeping. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be back with the rest of our conversation with Eleanor Parker after the break.
1: So it seems like part of that um, closeness to nature and that sense of uh, humans being an inextricable part of the natural world has to do with the cycle of the year, um, which is a natural cycle, of course, and is also the cycle of the liturgical year. Um, We're recording this just after um, the Annunciation, actually, which... it's, it's the day on which everything happens, um, according to, I think Tom Holland just tweeted this. So what else March happens? March 25th. March 25th. Right. What else happens on, an, on March 25th? So this
2: is something that kind of early medieval scholars of the calendar worked out, that 25th of March was um, the historical date of the crucifixion. Um, Okay, so that's how they kind of calculated it, that Christ died at Passover. So that means you can work out he died on a particular date. And they figured in the Julian calendar, that would be March 25th. And so from that, they then kind of worked backwards (laughs) to assign other important dates to March 25th such as the Annunciation. Um, and then I think what Tom Holland was referencing is that uh, uh, Tolkien, too, made March 2015, <laughs> the day on which uh, the ring is destroyed. Um, so very nice parallel to the crucifixion there. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, Tolkien knew his medieval calendars for sure. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but we're actually going to be releasing this the the week after um, Easter, so Easter week. And that will be Eastertide. Um, and it will get us into another Sort of tide, which I had not heard of, um, that you mentioned earlier on. Do you? Want, where are we in the year? Where are your listeners right now in the the Anglo-Saxon year? So
2: Easter tide um, is the period, of course, that comes after Easter. You know, you get Lent, which is a long. I think it would have felt very long in the Middle Ages for sure. Um, because you know in the the anglo-saxon period and the medieval period generally lent was a time of a really serious proper fast um, and then so once you get to easter those fasting restrictions are limited uh, are lifted um, and you can properly celebrate and feast and, and enjoy yourself and then uh, easter tide runs um for 40 days it runs up to ascension day um, and what we were talking about earlier so just before ascension day you get this kind of mini season three days called regation tide Um, And in the medieval church, that was a time um, for this particular custom of going on processions, um, sort of taking relics or uh, sort of holy objects out of the church and going in procession around the local area, um, praying, blessing, um, preaching sermons, kind of getting together as a a parish community um, at, at different sort of places in the local landscape and in a sense kind of sanctifying them blessing them um, and often specifically blessing the growing crops which obviously are starting to kind of spring up by the time you get to irrigation tide it's usually kind of may or um, that kind of time of year so you're sort of looking ahead to the harvest you're hoping for a good harvest praying for a good harvest but also sort of enjoying this moment of, you know, Easter celebration, Ascension Day, a celebration in this sense of Christ's triumph and summer in its flourishing, you know, it's kind of highest point are kind of going together um, at that point in the calendar.
0: So a big part of this is, is again, you know, that connection to nature, to growing things, uh, you know, which kind of is is missing maybe from our our ways of thinking about Easter to some degrees.
2: Yeah, I think we've kind of forgotten that there's a reason that Easter is in the spring, (laughs) you know, it seems like it's just an accident, but it's not at all.
0: This is completely superficial and there's zero relationship to Anglo-Saxon anything, but there is this great custom in Germany, where I lived for seven years, at least in parts of it, of uh, Ascension Day, Uh, it's actually just groups of guys. Uh, The tradition is that you go out into the woods for the day and just kind of hike from place to place. That's nice. <laughs> and it was always, you know, just, uh, really, it is just a beautiful time of year. Uh, I suppose the, the original Christian inspiration for this was that Jesus and the disciples go out, you know, to, uh, you know, a wilderness and a wilderness place. And, and that's where the assumption happens. Of course, that's long since been forgotten, you know, in a, in the midst of beer drinking. But, uh, is that at all Anglo-Saxon?
2: <laughs> I feel like that's probably something similar to Regation Tide, really. It's this same impulse to just get outside and enjoy, you know, the good weather and the the countryside. And um, if you have a religious reason for doing so, all the better. But, you know, it's partly just the pleasure of getting outside. It's an excuse. <laughs> right.
1: Um, I'm just, I kind of want to, um, I'm wondering whether we can go back to March 21st, um, which is the, the solstice. And there was this... Uh, goofy tweet from like Stonehenge's official Twitter account, which d- troubles me on so many levels, um, but it was about sort of um, pagans or, you know, Neo Druids doing some kind of ritual at Stonehenge um, and, you know, very, uh, the, the sort of a celebration of like this renewal of interest in, in um, English paganism or paganism on this island anyway.
0: Yes, Eleanor, that also struck me that there is this sort of desire to reconnect with the natural world that is, you know, today kind of packaged as neo-paganism. And you've done some, you know, fascinating tweeting and writing about uh, this question of, you know, there's this claim Easter is actually a pagan holiday uh, if we'd only get back to the, the real thing. Um, could you talk a little about that? Is is Easter uh, originally a pagan holiday? What's the relationship, you know, of the Anglo-Saxon Christian way of approaching these things to what kind of people think about as pagan today?
2: Yeah. So the the thing is, there's this kind of myth essentially, um, which has developed about the idea of the sort of pagan origins of Easter. That so. Um, the one thing that you, you can say is pagan uh, about Easter, it's just the name, the English name only. Um, so the English name Easter comes from maybe, an Anglo-Saxon goddess called Airstra who might have been celebrated around this time of year, kind of around the spring equinox. Um, But that's just the name and it's only the name in English um, because other languages have other names for Easter which are often much more related to Passover, um, so much more clearly Christian. Um, And because the English name for Easter has these kind of Maybe pagan origins. Um, There are lots of sort of theories and myths that have developed about you know what might have been borrowed from this kind of hypothetical pagan festival. Like, do we eat eat eggs at Easter because oh, eggs were sacred to goddess Aostra or something? and that isn't really that doesn't reflect uh, anything that's based in the Anglo-Saxon or early medieval evidence. Um, things like, you know, eating eggs at Easter can just as well be explained by the fact that you didn't eat eggs during the Lenten fast. And so then at Easter, you did start to eat eggs again. And, you know, so not so worth celebrating. It doesn't that, have to th- have those those there, eggs <laughs>
0: tasted really good.
2: Uh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, after the, the fast of Lent, I think everything probably tasted pretty good. <laughs> yeah so there's this kind of tendency to want to locate pagan origins for things that actually probably have more mundane explanations um and i do think it is what susanna was saying about this this desire that people have to it's totally understandable people want to find a kind of spirituality that feels like it's in touch with nature with seasonal cycles which do mean a lot to people and they feel like well, Christianity doesn't do that, you know, Christianity doesn't offer that. So probably whatever we see in Christianity that seems seasonal, like a spring festival is probably really pagan. But actually, that's not true of medieval Christianity. It was really very integrated with seasonal cycles um, because just medieval life was generally it kind of you couldn't have a religion that was totally divorced from um, things like the cycles of agriculture. Um, so you don't have to sort of look for pagan borrowings as an explanation for that. That's just what medieval culture was like.
1: And of course, that's also what biblical culture was like. And right, to, absolutely. to pretend that the the Hebrew liturgical year had nothing to do with sort of cycles of nature or harvest festivals or all the things that people want to get from um, sort of renewals of uh, imaginative recreations of paganism is to ignore ignore the basic that this is a human thing. This is, this is natural. It, it would be bizarre if it weren't the case that there were, um, that these things were embedded in the liturgical year of, of these religions.
2: Because it's true of, of most religions that there's yeah. some aspect of seasonal festivals. And I think specifically with Christianity, part of the myth is almost about a wish to um, among, especially 19th century <laughs> historians really wanted to downplay anything in Christian, the Christian calendar that had Jewish roots. They were often really uncomfortable with the idea of all the link, you know, kind of making that link too strongly. And they're almost happier saying, oh, it's probably pagan rather than exactly what you're talking about. Those kind of biblical harvest festivals, for instance, or the timing of Passover. These were things they weren't as happy talking about. Um, so they invent pagan <laughs> roots because it's like, oh yeah, it's probably just that. <laughs>
0: Well, it's the whole phenomenon, right, of the the golden bow. you know, that James George Fraser book from 1890, uh, of just kind of reinventing. uh, I I mean, it's no accident, too, that this interest happened around the time of the Industrial Revolution or a generation or two afterwards. And people are just trying to kind of, seems to me, reconnect with nature in a way that it's a little you kind of have to back invent this pagan mythology to justify it.
2: Yeah, it was only necessary because we had become separated from nature, I guess, is that sense of a, a distance and so people found it hard to imagine what was the case in medieval ch- Christianity, a kind of religion that's really deeply kind of embedded in the natural world because that's not maybe what their own experience was. Um and perhaps that's how it is for a lot of people now that We feel distant from nature so we kind of think oh yeah probably they were in the past as well but actually it's our experience that's sort of unusual on the historical scale
1: in terms of sort of the ideas of um typology and the way that typology works lewis had a great thing about sort of is you know is easter a sort of springtime festival of um you know growing grain and he was like well um what came first is sort of God's plan to, for Christ to be crucified and, and to resurrect. And so the resurrection of Christ is actually the first thing. And then after that, God sort of ordered creation to imitate that resurrection in in spring. And then pagan harvest festivals came along to recognize that there was a resurrection going on. And sort of, so the the ordering of what came first, the resurrection of Jesus or um pagan harvest festivals or indeed like the literal cycle of you know grains falling into the earth and then and then springing up is kind of reversed in a typological understanding of of reality is that something like the way that anglo-saxons would have thought of it or how how would they have thought of this
2: yeah i think that that does kind of reflect the way they would have thought about it that the sense that um Chris, they would have thought of it as Christianity doesn't take its images from the natural world, the natural world is what it is because God made it that way. And so when you observe things about the natural world, when you observe the cycles of growth or the cycles of the sun and moon solstices and equinoxes, whatever, if you notice those things, God designed them in that way. And so that must tell you something, there should be some symbolic that you can discern from that. Um, And so for instance, thinking about, you know, why the equinoxes and solstices are fundamental to the date of Easter or the date of Christmas um, is because as medieval Christians saw it, You should be able to make a connection you know god made the sun and moon and he made them have these particular cycles and so there must be some kind of meaning um which derives from them um so yeah it's it's kind of it's a reverse of how we might think about it um rather than sort of like attributing meaning to these things they they think they feel they're drawing meaning that's already there
1: and of course that sort of reflects the the vision of genesis that the the sun and the moon and the stars are made, I think the quote is for times and seasons and days and years. So like one of the reasons that the the stars exist is to, you know, mark uh mark seasons. One of the reasons that or one of the reasons that stars exist is to sort of tell stories. And one of the reasons that the sun's the sun and moon exist is to mark seasons. Um it's just a it's a inversion of the normal understanding of what it means to be a symbol almost. Mm. Yeah.
0: So in the Anglo-Saxon year, we've gotten through Rogation Tide and, and Ascension Day. How do things go on from there? Uh, what, what would Pentecost look like?
2: So Pentecost, Whitsun is the, the old English name for that, um, would uh, very much be a kind of summer festival because you're getting very close to the height of summer there, um, and essentially people celebrated it by doing whatever they felt like doing that felt nice in June, I think. Um, Some of the things they would do would have religious components, so it was especially a time for baptisms, um, also especially a time for things like coronations and um, the ordination of bishops and so so kind of um, ceremonies of kind of conferring the Holy Spirit or uh, consecration or something like that. we're gonna have a coronation in Britain this year, but I'm I'm really disappointed they didn't pick a Pentecost day. It's close, but it's not Pentecost unfortunately. Um and but so some like yeah, some of the things they do at Whitson um would have that kind of religious component. But actually also, you know, it seems to have just been a time when people would, you know, enjoy themselves and, and um uh,
0: I mean just from the weather point of view it's also a great a great time to get a big crowd together, right? Outside yeah, and, and then
2: exactly. and celebrate. Yeah, which you can't always do in Britain, you know, you have to pick your time of year. So.
1: Yeah. Well, hopefully, Charles will nevertheless get an extra dose of the Holy Spirit because I think he might need it. Um, it, it seems to me that a lot of your, um, your work has been kind of this attempt to point people back towards the resources um, w- within the English tradition, the Anglo-Saxon tradition, um, and away from the, the 19th century Paganized version or the um, the fanciful version of of what that what they're trying to get from that is that something that is that rings true to you is that is that something that you have sort of done consciously or what what draws you about all these things.
2: I think what I mostly want to do is just to help people get back to reading as close to the original sources or material as they can, because so often, you know, I started off by reading a bit of The Dream of the Rood. The language of that is really difficult. That's not something you're gonna be able to understand just listening to it. Um, And so for a lot of people, um, you know, medieval world feels very distant and they encounter it as second hand and that second hand you know it might be through the work of excellent historians or it might be through rather distorted later you know 19th or 20th century kind of ideas or myths or even you know the kinds of myths that go around the internet about the pagan Easter or whatever, which can be a distortion um, of what the original material can can show us so. I think what i always want to do is just to help people get closer to what is actually there and then i don't want to tell people what to think about it (laughs) they can read it and they can feel like i don't know this is really pagan or whatever and that's completely fine um uh, you know i'm not trying to sort of uh present this material in any particular way i'm just trying to help people approach it to understand aspects of it that might seem unfamiliar or difficult to understand Um, and, and try and help kind of bridge that gap that exists between us and this world of you know many, many centuries ago and a very different kind of mindset.
0: Well, for our listeners, uh, we strongly urge you to uh, dive into this kind of more nature-attuned understanding, and you can do that uh, through checking out Eleanor's book. It's Winters in the World, A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year. It came out uh, last year, and it's just beautiful. So to conclude, Eleanor, I know that you probably have many favorite moments in the Anglo-Saxon year. Uh, so right now, as we're looking at spring and summer coming our way, what's a especially memorable one uh, that you could leave us with?
2: Yeah, I think my answer would probably change depending on what time of the year you ask me. Um, I think at the moment, I would actually say Rogation Tide because I really like the sense that you get from Rogation Tide of the community coming together to observe this moment in the year. Um, this sense that it's about um, say a particular church community or a particular town, um, recognizing the, the space that's around them, kind of noticing their particular little bit of nature, their fields, their rivers, their hills, whatever, blessing them, Trying to bring sort of God's blessing to them, um, and doing that together, very much a kind of as a, a sort of a unified community. Um, I think that's an aspect of of the the medieval church year that really appeals to me. I think it's just lovely.
0: Okay, so uh, put that on your calendar, everyone. Uh, the days before Ascension Day, go out and at least notice and hopefully bless the beautiful bits of nature right around you. Thank you so much for joining us, Eleanor. It is always a joy to talk with you and it won't be the last time.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast needs met and share with your friends. For a lot more content like this, check out plow.com for the digital magazine. You can also subscribe. $36 a year will get you the print magazine or for $99 a year, you can become a member of Plow. That membership carries a whole range of benefits from free books to regular calls with the editors to invitations to special events and the occasional gift. Our members are one aspect of the broader Plough community, and we depend on them as a kind of extra advisory council. Go to plowcom slash membership to learn more.
0: On our next episode, we'll be speaking with Elam Sicassis about the AI menace and why we cannot be replaced by computers.